Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 44 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. As always, my name is David Noe. I'm here in the vomitorium, not by the dawn's early light, with my good friend, Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for asking. You're welcome once again. <laughs> how are you this evening? I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. Feeling upbeat, patriotic. Yes. Yeah. How about yourself? Uh, I'm also feeling upbeat and patriotic. Excellent. Uh, we're just, uh, what, this is airing a couple days after the uh, American Independence Day? That's right. And uh, I could ask you, what kinds of things did you do on the 4th? What kinds of festivities did you attend? But you'd have to just make it up. Exactly right. We could talk about what we've done in the past. I think we're going to do that in this episode. Oh, we are. Excellent. Yes. So I'll hang on to that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so what is the topic of tonight's episode? We're talking about uh, classics and the American Revolution. Really? Okay. Yes. The influence of ancient Greece and Rome on the founders. And I'm excited about this one. I mean, you brought this topic to me. Um, oh, you're going to blame this on me, huh? I mean, No. <laughs> I, uh, but you brought, you brought this topic and said, hey, this sounds great. This could be really cool. Let's do a kind of a July 4th themed one. So I'm excited to see where this one goes. Yes, I am too. It's going to be really topical. We got to start with our shout out. And this one goes to Ava Grossman. Ava is from Des Moines, Iowa. She is a 2020 graduate of King's College, which I understand is in Manhattan. Uh, where she studied humanities. Excellent. Do you know if she did, did she do any Latin or Greek? She did some Latin there for sure. Fabulous. Yeah. She is the sister of a friend of mine, a gentleman named Nick. Now we don't know if Nick listens to the podcast, so he doesn't get a shout out. No, no, we shouldn't even be, we shouldn't even be mentioning his name. Probably not. I think it's verboten. Ava, uh, thank you very much for listening. We're grateful. She lives in Des Moines, Iowa and uh, still pursuing her classical interests while she's also pursuing real estate. Excellent. We need these kind of Renaissance men and women out there. We do. Yep. Who are taking in the classics and keeping them down. Keeping them down. Dave, you got an opening quote for us this week? Yes, I do. So again, the theme this week is classics in the American Revolution. And the opening quote comes from a very famous scholar, a man named Bernard Balin. So this is from his 1967 work, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. And uh, this was recommended to me by a friend. This book is so popular that there was a 50th anniversary edition that was released in 2017. Wow. And that's the one I'm reading. So here's the quote, and it is uh, from page 25. What gripped their minds, this meaning the founders, what they knew in detail, and what formed their view of the whole of the ancient world was the political history of Rome from the conquests in the East and the civil wars in the early first century B.C., to the establishment of the empire on the ruins of the Republic at the end of the second century AD. For their knowledge of this period at hand, they needed only Plutarch, Livy, and above all, Cicero, Sallust, and Tacitus, writers who had lived either when the Republic was being fundamentally challenged or when its greatest days were already passed and its moral and political virtues decayed. Wow. Excellent. So we're going to we're going to look under the hood of, of, of that quote. Exactly. We're going to kind of see where the founders took their inspiration and how it guided them in, in kind of forming their ideas of this great American experiment, which we're still all a part of. That's right. All right. At least all of those in North America who are listening. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to exclude our international. Well, uh, yeah. we have something uh, for all those in the Commonwealth. 
That is the Anglophone Commonwealth. We have something for them at the end. So if they stay tuned oh, for yes. the entire episode, they're going to get a nice little surprise. Nice little treat. On the way out. Yes. Exactly. Uh, now, in this episode, we're going to rely heavily on an important work by a man named Carl J. Richard. And the title of this book is simply The Founders and the Classics, Greece, Rome, and the American Enlightenment. Now, this work was written in 1995, and I happened to read it in about 1999. I'm not sure exactly why it came to my attention, but it was fascinating. It was such a, uh, well, frankly, revolutionary book for me in terms of situating some things I had learned in grade school about the American Revolution mm -hmm. into an actual intellectual and historical context. We were talking in our last episode about our our travails in graduate school. And right. I think you mentioned about uh, being distracted by things. Was this one of these that you pulled off the shelf exactly when you so. should have been do doing other things? Yeah, I went through a period of uh, reading back into American history and uh, got quite deep into it, actually. I read this book. Um, I read something by a, a woman named Pauline Meyer called uh, American Scripture, which was about the Declaration of Independence. I was reading a biography of Alexander Hamilton. At this at the same time? Yeah, well, this was 20 years before that uh, musical that, that musical. Everybody's right. so crazy about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can you can you get a sense of my uh, animosity and <laughs> disdain? There's some catchy tunes in that. All thing. right. Well, I was reading the biography 20 years ago. <laughs> All right. And I, I went through a stage where I read a lot of uh, American Civil War history too, uh, the Lincoln biography stuff about Frederick Douglass and so forth. You always been interested in American history, like from when you were a kid. Well, yes and no. Uh, you you probably had this experience, but in in my public high school. All we got was American history. Mm. We got a lot of American history. And so by the time I got to college, I wanted to learn the history of other parts of the world. And I was a little bit irritated that I hadn't gotten a chronological exposure. Oh, okay. Why didn't we start with the beginning? I mean, American history, as important as it is, right. it's not even 300 years old. Right, really. right, right. Yeah, yeah. So why not uh, learn something about Europe and uh, you know the ancient Egyptians, etc.? Gotcha. But after I felt like I had caught up a little bit on those things, well, then I was trying to avoid writing a dissertation, so <laughs> anything goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm with you there. I mean, I grew up, I, my, I owe my parents a lot of credit, is they did not, well, you know, at the time I wasn't too happy about it, but they didn't take us to Florida or a beach for spring break. It was always something historical. Okay. So we went through Civil War battlefields. Did you go to Gettysburg? Get, of course, Gettysburg, yes. They took us to D.C. twice mm. um, before I was 13. Just in case it had changed since the last time? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, touring the Capitol in the White House, Ford's Theater, and right. and and so I they instilled in me a kind of a deep love and interest and fascination with American history, and um, it wasn't and it was very deliberate on their part. They wanted this is stuff they think you ought to know and you ought mm. to see and you ought to know how to interpret it and 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 how it speaks to us and how it's still important. So I was really excited when you brought up this topic. So Jeff, that brings up the question of patriotism, doesn't it? It does. Now we can't talk about the American founding as Americans without uh, touching on the topic of patriotism. Right. So I pulled up this quote from the uh, English scholar, a man named uh, Clive Staples Lewis. And uh, it's his work, The Four Loves. I read this, I don't remember when. But uh, the quote he has here about patriotism, because love of country, love of place, is one of those four loves that he says is a legitimate and good thing for an individual to cultivate. Mm. But he says, quote, We all know now that this love, that is love of country, becomes a demon when it becomes a god. Wouldn't that be true of all the four loves, though, to some degree? Why did you know why he singled patriotism out for, for, with this language? Well, I think it's because of the time in which he wrote, right? Post-World War II. Oh, okay. You see, so we all know now, right? Oh, right. I, I think it's something that everyone has always known. Mm -hmm. And any love taken to an extreme 
becomes a demonic kind of consuming force. But I think Lewis is just thinking in terms of his circumstance that we just went through uh, a world apocalypse, really, right? where excessive devotion to one's country, you know, love of country over all other kinds of bonds uh, wrought tremendous devastation. Right. Well, we have, a, we have the wonderful word jingoism for that that concept, right? Exactly. So, and I mean, I think that's an important distinction. Discussions around patriotism, uh, even today, where we're not in the wake of a, of a world war, are still get very, very heated. And I think that word means different things to different people. I think when a lot of people hear patriotism, their mind immediately goes to what Lewis is talking about, kind of a jingoistic, yes. um, you know, my country, wrong or right. 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 Yeah. So those are some of the things we're going to talk about today. Excellent. And as we get started... Uh, we're going to divide this up into sections based on uh, Carl Richard's fabulous book. And we're going to look at a couple of different themes and elements in the lives of the founding fathers, the founders, and uh, the education that they have, symbolism that they use from the classical world, uh, models and what uh, Richard calls anti-models. Then we're going to look at pastoralism and mixed government. We're going to end up with a little bit of philosophy and uh, then finally the strong reaction to classicism that took hold during the time of the American founding. So over the next seven and a half hours. Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, start us off. Where where do we go? Um, We're going to start out with classical conditioning. Okay. Uh, This has nothing to do with that episode where we were talking about, you remember Calypso? (laughs) I do. I do. Okay. (laughs) Right. So some of our listeners, you know, they're so avid and we appreciate that. So they need to go back through the archive and uh, to get that reference, to get that reference of Calypso. Yeah. So classical conditioning is a description. This is chapter one of the book. It's uh, and hopefully when we finish this episode, people are going to want to buy this book and read it. Maybe we'll get uh, Dr. Richard on the program at some point. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. He's down teaching at the University of Louisiana, I believe. And I'm so impressed by this book. So chapter one, classical conditioning. So this is from page 12, and I'm going to read this quote and then we'll unpack it. Richard says, it was mostly in the schools that the founders learned to venerate the classics. The socialization process was so complete, the classics themselves so attractive that even bad teachers employing the most brutal and unimaginative pedagogical techniques (laughs) often instilled a love of the literature in their students. The founders classical conditioning was so successful that most learned to relish the classics as a form of entertainment and to consider the ancients wise old friends. He's saying that, I mean, the classes are so attractive and inviting in and of themselves that um, like you and I don't even really have to be entertaining, do we? No, because the topic is a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. I mean, 44 episodes uh, without any entertainment at all. But yet uh, our numbers go up. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to read a quote like that and not, you know, as a teacher of the classics, get a little bit of a sense of self-reflection. Right. I Mm -hmm. love this. Even bad teachers employing the most brutal and unimaginative (laughs) pedagogical techniques. Is he talking about me? (laughs) Exactly right, right. Because I've tried them all. Right. But here's here's the really important part. Relish the classics as a form of entertainment and to consider the ancients wise old friends. Hmm. So that's that's some deep classical conditioning. Um, Before we get further, we should mention to, to the audience that they might hear in the background some booms and bangs. Yes. And so there's there's actual fireworks going on. Outside the vomitorium. Not, not far from the vomitorium. Right. right? Yeah. So we are recording this episode. How does it go? Under the rocket's red glare? Yes. The bombs it, bursting in air? Exactly right. Yep. So um, if you hear that, if you wonder what those little uh, booms are, just consider that to be 
just kind of a necessary soundtrack for the topic that yeah, we're it's, covering. It's ambience, yes. right? It's it's, it's not uh, Doctor Winkle's indigestion. <laughs> so. How did the founders go about even learning the classics? Well, uh, Richard gives us some very helpful insight here as well uh, on the very next page, actually. And I'm going to quote here again. Grammar school students commonly studied the classics every morning from 8 to 11 and every afternoon from 1 until dark. The learning process generally began with a memorization of the grammatical rules contained in Ezekiel Cheever's short introduction to the Latin language. The people then translated the Latin dialogues in Marturius Corderius's colloquies which contained both Latin and English columns. Now, this is interesting because Corderius uh, was John Calvin's Latin teacher. Oh, is that right? Yes, and he wrote these dialogues, uh, Marturin Cordier, he's a Frenchman, this is the Latinized version of his name. Okay. He wrote these fascinating dialogues that were you know, studied and read for the next you know, 300 years easily, uh, very much like Erasmus's colloquies, but much easier. Okay. So very good for children to you know, cut their teeth on. So these had been around for... Um, Already 150 years? Yeah, almost 200 years. By the time these guys get their hands on it? Yeah, nearly 200 years. Wow. So the quote continues, uh, at more advanced stages, he, meaning the pupil, translated Cicero's epistles or orations, followed by Virgil's Aeneid. The first day, the pupil translated a given passage aloud. The second, he wrote out his translation. And the third, he converted his own translation back into Latin in a different tense. Oh my gosh. That's really intense, isn't it? That is. The quote continues, he then took up Greek. Memorizing the grammatical rules in William Camden's Institutio Graecae Grammaticae Compendiaria before translating the New Testament, Isocrates or Xenophon, and Homer. Finally, the grammar student had to convert Greek passages into both Latin and English. Unreal. Yes. These are grammar school students. Yeah, these are you know boys ages 7 to 13, 15, something like that. That's crazy. I mean, I note in the quote, they study it from 8 to 11 in the morning. That's three hours. And then one until dark. That's another five or six. Oh, sorry, no gym. No gym. No gym. <laughs> a small break for a snack. I don't think so. Man, so it's all classics all the time. Yes. Wow. So it's really, it's really no wonder that they imbibed them so completely. Right. When we're talking about you know, who these grammar students were, this is... This is the elite of the elite, isn't it? It's anyone that can get an education. Okay. But which was still in in this time, place, and era, a fairly small slice of the of the larger population, would yes. you say? Okay. I, I would think so. I I believe probably Richard includes some figures and statistics because the book is frankly exhaustive in detail. Yeah. It's so impressive. I can't remember okay. uh, off the top of my head, but I'm gonna guess no more than a quarter, probably twenty five percent of the population would have had access to this kind of education. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's also interesting that they were not only given to the study of Latin, uh, but to the study of Greek as well. Hmm. And uh, the man referred to as the American Sphinx, Thomas Jefferson, yes, was probably the most ardent devotee of classics in the colonies by far. His library, his personal library was, was extremely impressive. Yeah, the best in the Americas. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think you have a quote for us from Richard about Jefferson's devotion to Greek. Yes, I do. This comes from page 28. He writes, Jefferson's favorite language was Greek, and his favorite poet was Homer, who was universally acclaimed as the father of Western literature in the ideal according to which all writers were measured. In 1819, Jefferson termed Greek the finest of human languages. Hmm. So So what do you make of that? Well, you know, I, I read a biography of Jefferson a number of years ago, 
And um, one of the things that, that stood out to me was Jefferson's personality was such that he didn't have a he didn't have a lot of big sense of humor. No, um, he, he was high strung. I mean, thus kind of the American Sphinx, right? right? A very high strung. He, he couldn't throw down in the pubs with like uh, like Hamilton could. His devotion to Greek and and Homer uh, was he just kind of America's first ultra nerd? <laughs> <laughs> and, have you been to Monticello? I have once when I was very young. But yes. it left a huge impression on me. Yeah, for me too. I, I was not so young, but it was while we lived in Virginia. I visited several times. We took family there and friends and so forth. Right. And I purchased a really nice coffee mug on it. Oh, it said Monticello Jefferson. And it was a quote from Jefferson. I cannot live without books. Mm. Very, very nice. Yeah, yeah, it is nice. And uh, the mug broke eventually. <laughs> uh, I, I began to like it more for its thermal properties. Mm than for the quote. Oh, really? I started to think that the quote, you know, is a little inaccurate. I could live without books. I see. A little a little uh, hyperbole on, yes, on a little, um, Tommy's part. Yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, what would Lewis and his four loves say about that? I right. don't think the love of books is one of those, but it, it kept my coffee you know, at perfect temperature. It's good size and shape. I liked it a lot. Yeah. yeah. But Monticello is such an impressive place. It is. It's Which a, he designed himself. Exactly. Right. It has the ideal kind of outdoor working office. You walk down that long wing and you go to the little, I think it's an octagon. Someone's going to correct us, but mm -hmm. it's a little octagon at the end of one of these wings with uh, all surrounded by windows with his desk right in the center. Right. So it's like working outside, you know, in the fresh air, but with some protection from the elements. Yeah. Ideal place to, to work and think and, and study. And speaking of, you know, classical influence, Monticello itself, it's almost as if Jefferson took, you know, kind of the geometry of a Greek, of a Greek temple and, and kind of tweaked it. Combined it with some elements of a Renaissance villa. Exactly. And came up with something kind of beautiful and, and new. It's an incredible building. I also remember on the tour there, just a number of little things that Jefferson invented. He invented, you know, he was a, uh, a writer of many letters. Yes. And he built this device where mm -hmm. one pen was hooked up to like four other pens. Right. So he could write, uh, you know, four copies of a letter all yes. at once. And it, just astounding. Yeah, a the, very fertile mind. Yes. July 4th is marked as the nation's birthday because, of course, it was on that date that the Declaration of Independence was ratified. Mm -hmm. Jefferson was one of the main authors of that document. Right. And Richard points out page 29, Jefferson was so immersed in the classics that they profoundly influenced his writing style, helping to produce the clarity and concision which stand as his trademark. From classical rhetoric, Jefferson learned the three qualities which he deemed essential to good Republican oratory. They were simplicity, brevity, and rationality. So what I take from that is his influence there was um, probably coming mostly from the Romans. Definitely. Right. So, I mean, simplicity, brevity, and rationality. Well, at least with the simplicity and brevity, I'm not reminded of the Athenians. No, not by any stretch. Right. So, this is not Aristophanes. It's not Demosthenes. Right, right, right. Is he probably Cicero? Yes. Is, is he is taking his cue from? Yeah, we'll talk mm. about that a little bit uh, further on, but it was, it was Cicero, Sallust, Tacitus, and so forth. Uh, these individuals were really important in the minds of the founders. Yeah. All right, we should, we got to move along. Sadly. We do. There's right. so much good material here. So we're going to go along to the next chapter, 
Which is uh, covers symbolism. Yes, okay. that's right. So the founders drew from the works of antiquity a lot of symbols that became important to them in their imagination, hmm. and then in their uh, writing, their work as pamphleteers, yes. writing pamphlets. They were trying to design a constitution after they won the war and so forth. And uh, Richard points out very interesting elements here of Madison's attachment to symbolism. Okay. So James Madison placed the busts of Homer. This is from uh, page 50. The busts of Homer and Socrates beside those of Jefferson himself and his wife. Wait, so, so Madison had a bust of Jefferson in his yes. house? That's a, little, that's a little odd, isn't it? No. No? Okay. I have one of you in my house. <laughs> I've seen it. It's not, it's not my best side. It's a good likeness. <laughs> It's kind of like having a photograph, but it's a high-quality uh, object of art. Okay, I got I think you. that's the idea. All right, okay. It didn't strike me as odd that he had a bust of Jefferson. Okay. It struck me as odd that he had busts of himself <laughs> and his wife, and he put Homer and Socrates next to them. <laughs> that is a little odd. That's some interesting ambition, <laughs> is, isn't it? Yeah, I want to know more about James Madison, but okay. let, keep going. Please. All right, so to yeah. continue the quote, John Witherspoon named his country home Tusculum after Cicero's villa. John Randolph named his horses Plutarch, Gracchus, Diomed, Mark Antony, and Regulus. Oh my gosh. Wow. John Rutledge named his horse Caesar. Henry Lawrence named his slaves Tully, Valerius, and Claudius. That's odd, isn't that, it? That is odd. All right, keep, keep going. This you going to say anything about that? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struck dumb. I'm speechless by that. Well, we're uh, not going to ignore the elements of slavery in the American founding. It's no. not the purpose of the episode, but we're not going to ignore it either. Right. George Washington purchased paintings called Cupid's Pastime and Diana Deceived by Venus, and he ordered busts of Sallust, Terence, and Horace. On July 6, 1756, during the French and Indian War, Washington chose Xanthippe, the name of Socrates' wife, for the countersign at Fort Cumberland. What? Okay, I'm sorry. It's like a password, a code. Oh, that's what the countersign... Yeah, you pass along the soldiers, right? So you know whether to get past the password, the code is Xanthippe. So you're going through the woods at night... And you see kind of the the cluster of, of uh, muskets. And yes, exactly right. And you just, all your tri cornered hats. And, and they say they say halt. Yes. Who uh, who goest there? Right. Something like and that. Santippi. Like, <laughs> exactly. And then you're good. That's awesome. I've never heard this before. And then you get into Fort Cumberland. <laughs> that is great. Here's another even better one. Benedict Arnold's drugstore signboard. Did you know that Benedict Arnold had a uh, a drugstore? No clue. Did you know that Benedict Arnold's drugstore had a signboard? <laughs> I didn't. What did it say? Would you like to know what's on it? I want to know what's on it. Okay. It ironically, here we're quoting uh, the great Carl J. Richard, it ironically featured a Latin line, quote, deeming himself born not for his own, but for the world's service. Wow. This is from the guy who's most famous for being a traitor. That's right. Wow. Yeah. My gosh. They even named the tiny stream running through Washington, D.C., the Tiber. Really? Yes. Does the, it still bear that? I don't know this tiny stream. I, I, it's probably not there anymore. I don't it's know. It's not the Potomac. No. That's, which is not tiny. No, no, no it's okay. quite large. Okay. Yeah, they were very deeply committed to the symbolism Man. of uh, the ancient world. It's really hard to comprehend how deep this went. Yeah. All right, let me read just a little bit more from that same page, page 50. Uh, Richard writes, The founders used classical symbols and allusions to claim social status. In colonial, revolutionary, and early national America, classical education, at least at the college level, was confined to the middle and upper classes. Okay, so that, that gets to what I was wondering about before. Yeah, your earlier question. Yeah, okay. Patience, patience, Winkle. I know, it's exactly. coming. I jumping ahead. Yeah, it's coming. Leaping like a horse named Gracchus. 
<laughs> Plutarch, Gracchus, Diomed. It's an interesting combination of characters, yeah, isn't it? It is. You've got the historian Plutarch, the uh, Republican hero Gracchus. You've got a character from Homer, Diomedes, and then Mark Antony of all people. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I've seen, I, I mean, I can't remember where I've seen them, but I've seen, you know, busts of Washington, um, and, and Jefferson in a toga. In, yes. 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 Exactly. In that kind that Roman, uh, that classical style, and of course all the monuments, like the Jefferson Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial, they're fashioned like Greek temples. You got Lincoln uh, sitting in there like Zeus. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. However, the Washington Monument is an Egyptian it's an obelisk, obelisk. Yes. Like the things that Augustus dragged into Rome during his reign. And they're still there. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that seems a little bit out of place. Yeah, that does. Do you know do you know anything about the background of that? I've oh, been to the top of it. I haven't. No. Yeah. All I know is that it is something like one yard uh, or one foot taller than the Great Pyramid of Giza. Was that done deliberately? Of course. Just to kind of lord it over those exactly. pharaohs? Exactly. Interesting. <laughs> Listeners may remember, in fact, a couple years back during the Trump administration, there was a bit of a dust up about the design of some new federal buildings, whether they were going to be in a kind of industrial modern design or whether there was going to be a uniformity of appearance and make them look classical or federal or neoclassical, something like that. Oh, really? I completely missed this one. Yeah, it kind of blew over. Do you know what what the result was? Well, the administration changed, so I think it's DOA. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we move on then into chapter three, which is models. And this is interesting because the founders liked to model themselves and their contemporaries around classical heroes. Mm -hmm. Can you read that quote, Jeff, from uh, page 55? I can. Uh, It goes something like this. Many of the founders' heroes originated in Greek and Roman mythology. Thomas Jefferson dubbed Samuel Adams the Palinurus of the American Revolution after Virgil's mythical hero, who, having piloted the Trojan ships to Italy, passed many dangers, fell overboard, and drowned. Not sure I'd want to be named after this guy. I think it was Jefferson's attempt to pay honor and respect to a guy who didn't get to see it through to the end. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So Samuel Adams was not just a beer guy. No. He was the rabble rouser in Boston who uh, in some ways birthed the revolution. Yeah. It was really, really important early on. Right. Uh, and then he didn't get to see it to fruition. That's right. Like Palinurus. Gotcha. So it's a, it's a perfect nickname. I think it's quite that's, apt. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, the quote goes on, the most popular mythological model was the leg- legendary Cincinnatus, though the founders considered him a real historical figure. Yes. Dave, tell us a little bit about Cincinnatus. Well, he's dated to the 5th century, and uh, as Richard just pointed out, many contemporary historians believe he was a real person, but there's been a heavy accretion of legend and myth piled on top of him. Mm-hmm. So Lucius Quinctius, or Quintius Cincinnatus, uh, lived from approximately 519 BC to around 430. A Roman patrician, statesman, military leader. I'm just reading from some uh, online Wikipedia oh, website. Okay. Oh. <laughs> It's good. Come on. (laughs) A lot of Wikipedia pages are really good. Right. Yeah. Anyway, Cincinnatus was a conservative opponent of the rights of the plebeians. So during this time in Roman history, now I'm not reading from the page. During this time in Roman history, there's the conflict of the orders Mm -hmm. between the patricians and the plebeians. And the conservatives, the landholders like Cincinnatus said, no, we're not going to give those who are coming late to the party, plebeians, those who weren't here, you know, at the, at the very founding of Rome, we're not going to give them the same rights as the aristocratic landholders. 
And there was a very important time when uh, Cincinnati was called into the service of his country. This was around 459, 458, and perhaps 20 years later, there was an uprising of the plebeians under Spurius Milius. And so the senators came to Cincinnati as he's plowing his field, and they say, take up the dictatorship, put down this rebellion. So he does. He is elected dictator, which is an office that has a six-month term. And you take an oath at the beginning that you will lay down the office of dictatorship at the end of your term. So having consolidated all military power into his own hands, Cincinnatus then laid it down, went back to his plow. Is that the ideal that, the, that drew the founders? Yes. This idea of stepping up in the moment, but then laying aside the power given to you. Correct. Right. Because, and this is something that I'm learning from the uh, other book, the Bernard Balin book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, the founders were concerned most about power. Right. Where is power placed? Who gets it? How does it work? Uh, there's a famous description that George Washington gives. I can't remember where it is, but he says, uh, you know, power or coercion is inherently displeasing to people. Nobody wants to be coerced. Mm -hmm. It's like fire, right? If you put it in the hearth, if you use it to light a candle, it's good, right? But you don't spread it all over the house. Because you don't want fire, you know, in other places. Right. So power is like that. Cincinnatus is a person who successfully laid down power, though he didn't have to. He could have exploited it. Right. And this, of course, is the very, the very um, thing that led to the the end of the Republic was Caesar. Not the Caesar. American Republic? No, 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 no. The, the <laughs> Roman Republic. Um, <laughs> ours is still around. Okay. Okay. Um, but he that he was, uh, you know offered perpetual dictatorship and, and took it. He took it, right. yes. He had to be killed to be removed from office. Right. So, as we'll see in just a minute, Washington deeply wanted to be associated with Cincinnatus. But in his own life, as he presented himself, he more aligned with Cato. Okay, yeah. So, to quote uh, Richard from page 58, in 1775, Washington prevented the resignation of General John Thomas, who was angered by an unjust demotion, by paraphrasing Cato's line, surely every post ought to be deemed honorable in which a man can serve his country. Despite congressional resolutions in 1774 and 1778 prohibiting all public officials from attending plays, I don't know why that would be, hmm. Washington ordered the Cato performed at Valley Forge. So this was a popular play. He said this has got to be performed at Valley Forge. Quote, he hoped to improve the soldiers' morale by inspiring them with the example of Cato's men that demonstrated extreme selflessness in the struggle for liberty. During these difficult times, Washington often repeated another line from Cato, "'Tis not in mortals to command success." So Washington, a, um, an elite himself. For sure. Um, I, a wealthy landowner. Right. You see, in, and also with Cincinnati too, there's kind of that simple farmer ideal. Oh, right? that's coming out next. Okay. I mean, down the road a little bit in this I'm episode. I'm jumping ahead of things again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we get to pastoralism. Okay, yes. The romantic idealization of the humble farmer and, mm -hmm. the, and the peasant life. Right. And for those who are listening carefully, which I trust is everybody, the name George here is going to prove significant. Right. To, I, I won't step on that one. Don't step. No. It's, it's coming. Yeah. So, um, but Cato, famous for his... His, his, simple, his simple dress. Frugality. Right? Frugality. Yep. This is Cato Eutychensis, the contemporary of Cicero, not Cato the Elder, but Cato the Younger. Yes. The guy who ended up committing suicide in North Africa. In a brutal fashion. Yes, by driving a, a sword or a dagger into his own stomach and mm -hmm. rooting around and taking three to four days to die. Oh, man. Immortalized by the historian Sallust in his Bellum Catalina. Right. 
Cato is very important. I'm curious about why the, uh, I, I, this is probably a red herring, prohibiting the, the, the attending of plays from uh, 1774 to 1778. Public officials couldn't go to plays? Yeah, well, what, I mean, what was going on there? Was it the, they thought they would drag their morale down? I mean, what kind of plays were they putting on? Yeah, I, I don't really know. Maybe it was the price of concession. <laughs> <laughs> you ever bought one of those popcorn and soda, you know, combos? Yeah, of course, right. It's like three, uh, three movie tickets, isn't it? It's, it? It kills you. You could get a couple muskets for that price, I think. So they were just preventing them from throwing their way their money right. on Whoppers and Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> yeah. What was the last movie we saw together? Oh. Don't even say it. <laughs> what, was it a bad one? I don't remember. They're it. all bad. <laughs> it's one of those I'm, awful comic I'm book I'm pretty films. sure Jason Momoa was in it. <laughs> was it Aquaman? Oh, man. Man, I wish... Uh, they had prevented uh, educators yeah. from attending the movies. Classicists may not attend <laughs> comic book themed movies. Now that's a law I could get behind. I could. I don't, you know how much money that would have saved us? Yes. Well, let's move on. We're right. off track. Yeah. One one more quote here from uh, <clears throat> John Adams. Can, this can is I read a doozy. This one? I, I want you to read this. Okay, one. I'll this read is this a doozy. One. All right. Uh, John Adams confessed to his diary the pleasure he derived from reading Cicero's orations aloud. The sweetness and grandeur of his sounds and the harmony of his numbers give pleasure enough to reward the reading if one understood none of his meaning. Besides, I find it a noble exercise. It exercises my lungs, raises my spirits, opens my pores, quickens the circulation, <laughs> and so contributes much to my health. There you go. Wow, opens his pores. It does. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience reading I, Cicero? I haven't. I, haven't. <laughs> I need to go back, though. My gosh. If you feel a little clogged up in some way, yeah. uh, John Adams would say, read some Cicero aloud. The sweetness, the grandeur, the harmony of his numbers, which means the rhythm of the, of the, uh, the, rhythm of the prose. Yes. No, I, I, I totally get that. There's, um, I've recently, in the past couple of years, have taught a kind of a, a survey of, of Western history from um, Renaissance to today, and I'll always throw in a Shakespeare play. And for a lot of my students, it's the first time they're encountering Shakespeare. And one of the things I recommend to them is, is um, we read it aloud in class and said, don't even worry about getting what he's saying. Just listen to the rhythm of it. Just right. kind of enjoy the sound of it. Right. So I totally get what Adams is saying there. Does right? it open their pores, though? <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All oh, right. Okay. Where are we going from here? Well, we got a couple more things before we get to the break. Okay. So uh, Benjamin Franklin also, this is page 68 of Richard. I think that just as an aside here. When the listener gets through this episode, they're probably going to say, I don't even need to read the book. <laughs> they <laughs> no quoted doubt. the whole thing. No doubt, right. No, there's much more in the book, trust us. Benjamin Franklin, quote, was the object of numerous analogies in 1756. This is why I like this one. Immanuel Kant, that's the famous philosopher, right? Yeah. Critique of pure reason. Immanuel Kant called Franklin the modern Prometheus after the Greek god who gave fire to humankind. Wow, and this is 1756, so it was well before the revolution. Yes. Yeah. Impressive, huh? My goodness, yeah. Uh, Europeans considered Franklin the Solon, the premier statesman, and Voltaire, Sophocles, the literary giant of the age, says Richard on page 69. So these literary illusions and comparisons are being tossed about all over the place at this time. Precisely. George Washington, says Richard, was the most common subject of classical analogies. In calling him the father of the country, Americans emulated Cato, who had given that title to Cicero. Alexander Hamilton called Washington the American Fabius. Interesting. Now, now you know Fabius, right? From the Second Punic War? Right. 
some of these illusions really go deep. They do. Um, I mean, uh, these names like Fabius and, and some of those, the, the horses' names and, and Xanthippe, these are not names that most people would know today. No, not I mean, something you just pick up in the air. Exactly right. So that speaks to kind of the depth of their knowledge of this, right. of this stuff. Right. You know, it's interesting to, to um, you know, see Washington compared to Cato like that. We were talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know seeing Washington sculpted like a, like a Roman, right. like a Roman emperor. It's, he looks more like Augustus uh, than he does than he does Cato, or even you know the famous sculptures of Augustus don't look don't look like Augustus. No, they look right? like Apollo. They look like Apollo, right? And so we know Augustus was kind of a, a shriveled, sickly man. Yes, but of course he's he's carved to look like a, a Greek god. Right. Um, Washington too was not painted or sculpted to look like Cato. No, but. But that's the that's the illusion. That's the comparison that brought out kind of the, his character. Right. Yeah. Apparently, this style faded quickly during the Victorian era. It was no longer uh, thought to be appropriate to portray the founders in Roman dress and garb. Oh, really? So it was very short lived. So it, it tended. To, uh, well, what happened? To you, what happened there? Did it tend to a more kind of a, like a realism, or I don't really okay. know. Okay. I don't really know. But what I do know is that. After the break, we're going to talk about Washington as Cincinnatus. Sounds good. Listeners, this episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For the last 40 years, Hackett Publishing has been bringing to the public affordable, attractive, erudite translations to the public. I've used them in many of my classes. Dave, you use them. I have them on my own shelf at home. Dave, tell me a little bit about what you like about Hackett Publishing. I like the fact that they have such a broad catalog. I like the fact that the covers look really interesting. The yes. translations are idiomatic. It's also inexpensive. Right. I've used Descartes' Meditations in my philosophy class, Plato's Republic by C.D.C. Reeve. They've got Stanley Lombardo's translations of the epics, Len Krizak's new translation of the Aeneid, everything, basically. And let's not forget that they are patrons and supporters of the popularization of classics. They jumped right on board with this podcast very early. Yeah, they believed in us um, from the very start. Before we even knew how to spell podcast. <laughs> That's right. They yeah. were there uh, supporting us. So listener, here's what you can do to support them. Listeners, go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Scroll through their vast catalog, find what you want, and type in AN2021 in the coupon code box, and you will get uh, 20% off your order and free shipping from whatever you find on their wonderful uh, website and catalog. It's a great deal. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. The fine folks in Portland, Oregon, led by Mark Helweg, our good friend, have solved all of your coffee and brew-based problems. All of them? All of them. Well, if you have been using... Go ahead. Yeah, well, no. How do they do that, though? Well, maybe you've been using coffee that's brewed in one of these machines made out of plastic, extruded or squirted out of a mold. Yes. No better than the packing it comes in. No, it's true. Sometimes you take it out of the box and you can't tell which one is the coffee maker, which one's the packaging. It's very true. It's not going to happen with the ratio six or the ratio eight. That's right. They solved your problems by creating, inventing a beautiful machine, sits on your countertop, it puts your other appliances to shame, and it brews delicious coffee. That's true. I've got the ratio six. I know you've got the ratio eight. Mine is comes in a beautiful uh, matte color, uh, that kind of the, the weighty carafe. I like the weight to the carafe. It's, it's fun a, to carry around the it, kitchen, it, isn't it? It is, exactly. You feel like you just feel like you're doing something important when you have that in your hand. Yes, there's weight in your hand, but it's 
spring in your step. That's exactly right. And there's no, there's no horrible burner. No, that, no that scotch scorch pad cooking. on the bottom. That's right. Exactly. That you could cook an egg on. Right. Um, brackish no, tang. No brackish tang. It's beautiful stuff. There's a there's a there's a, a Fibonacci head involved. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it, it adds to these. Are we becoming a self parody here? <laughs> Listeners, you got to go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O-C-O-F-F-E-E, RatioCoffee.com, enter the coupon code A-N-C-O, and you can get 15% off the Ratio 6. It's a great deal. This episode also brought to you by Odd Ostra Coffee, Odd Ostra Coffee out of Hillsdale, Michigan, from our friend Patrick Whalen, and um, producing and roasting just the highest quality beans that I've certainly ever tasted. It's delicious. It's good stuff. Absolutely good stuff. They have a number of different blends. They've got Tenebris, the Dark Shadows of Coffee, Huehuetenango, Las Lalas Microlot, Feminino from Guatemala. All of these are delicious coffees delivered to your door. they got a subscription service. They only roast uh, coffee that can score over an 80% on their standardized test. Did you know the coffee beans have to take a little standardized test? They do, yeah. They have to fill in the bubbles and the ovals. That's right. And they, they only take the highest, uh, the, right. the elite. That's right. Those beans, they get to pass on and become part of the Ad Astra experience. Yeah. Before I tried Ad Astra beans, I'd never thought about uh, you know the notes in the coffee yes. before. I thought it was just something to gulp down, to get my brain going, and get, get out a little the door. caffeine in there. But right. now you're savoring, aren't you? It is. It is. I, I walk around the house. And um, look contemptively, contemplatively, you know that word, out the window. Contemplatively. Thank you. I do that uh, out the window while, while sipping on my, um, my huehue tenango. Yeah. So listeners, go to Ad Astra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, AdAstraRoasters.com, please. And you can get 10% off any coffee that they have. That's AdAstraRoasters.com. Enter coupon code A-N-A-A. All right, Dave, now as we get back into this, you promised a comparison between George Washington and Cincinnati. And I'm going to deliver thanks to the work of Carl J. Richard. Let's do it. This is from page 72. Washington never offered to resign as commander of the Continental Army, even after the worst defeats. Now let that soak in a minute. Hmm. Because he did not wish to spoil by anticipation the offer of resignation which he had planned once he had, like Cincinnati, defeated the enemy. So he was already thinking way ahead. He, he was going to play that role. That's right. Wow. Even while he was losing battle after battle Man. early on, he said, no, don't resign now because I'm, I'm going to resign later on when it's all over. Man. Soon after that day arrived in 1783, Washington withdrew completely from public life, even going to the extreme of resigning from his local vestry. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? It is. In his letters of 1784, Washington referred to Mount Vernon as his villa, a term he had never before employed in allusion to his estate. The Cincinnati analogy benefited from a fact so obvious to every schoolboy it was barely mentioned. George derives from the Greek Georgos, meaning farmer. Farmer. It's almost too perfect. It fits so neatly. What I find doubly interesting about this is it would make just more sense to me if these analogies were kind of grafted onto Washington later. Yes. Right. You know, it's in kind of the developing of his The myth. mythology that builds up. Of course. It happens. Right. But here it seems that George saw kind of uh, himself as mythic. Definitely. He it, read this and he said, that's the person I want to be. That's incredible. I'm going to follow that trajectory. And he succeeded, really. Yeah. It is incredible. So Richard gives a nice summary uh, of this in entire chapter on models before we go on to anti-models chapter four he says quote classical models give the founders a sense of identity and purpose you got nothing to say about no, that no <laughs> you're thinking no i'm thinking about that i mean i was just wondering in like you know you and cicero 
Do you mean? Did you ever? Did you ever find yourself thinking along these lines? Like yes, that you know, I want to. I want to be absolutely. Can you give an example? Like or like a, <laughs> a specific of of like from? I mean, not just Cicero, but uh, any you know persona from antiquity that she said, I want to be like that, or or I think about it a lot. Okay. In fact, it's a strong pull on my character and imagination. I think I think the key is imagination. Everyone adopts models and patterns of how they want to behave. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're very small, I think every child imitates their parents, you know, mother and father in certain ways. I tended to imitate and emulate my father. I still do. But as you grow older, you adopt other models to emulate. I want to be like that. That's a pattern for me. Hmm. When you get deeply involved in the study of history, these people come alive in ways that perhaps aren't entirely healthy, I, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, the the ancient um, the ancient authors and, and figures they play a large role in one's imagination. Yeah. How often do you hear that someone should have a Socratic method of teaching? Right, right. I right. hear this all the time sure. from people who don't even you couldn't even tell you what century Socrates lived in. Right, right. right? Yeah. But they just know that asking questions like Socrates is a good thing. Yeah. Going deeper than that, the life of Cicero, right? A life devoted to public action. That seems admirable in some ways. It's not the life for me, but uh, there was a time when I thought that would be quite appealing. And uh, the combination of action plus reflection that you find in Cicero is appealing. Sure, sure, sure. How about about for you? I I hear you. I mean, just to hear you talk, it it takes me back to the very first episode we did when we were talking about, you know, what what characters from Greek mythology stuck out to us or or, uh, were important to us. But, you know, I think a lot about that... um, you know, kind of the notion of that Greek notion of excellence, yes, right, and, and arte, arte, and and and, and what what does that mean today in our in our own culture, and and how can I express that in my in my life at work and in my life at 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 home? So yeah, no, this is this is really quite intriguing to me. I mean, um, I mean one of my models was Indiana Jones. Right. It still is to a, yeah. a small degree. But you got the hat. Yeah, oh, man. I, I, you know, I got the hat once, and it was such a bad look. So I could not pull it off. So. I think you could pull it off. No, you think? Oh, well, you're very kind. Thank you. You ready to go on to chapter four? Let's do it. Okay, so chapter four is anti models. So these were persons in the Greco-Roman pantheon uh, from whom the founders deliberately shied away. They said, "That's the person I don't want to be." Okay. I'm not going to act like that. Okay. So Richard spent some time talking about Jefferson and his evaluation of slavery. And Jefferson, I have to confess, is my least favorite founder by a long stretch. Okay. So I admire a lot about what he did, and I admire the pros of the Declaration of Independence. But his life was too complicated uh, for me. I I don't like his agrarian impulses. His view of of the future of America would be everyone's a gentleman farmer. Right. Everyone owns a couple hundred acres and lives in a villa like himself. Yes. I'm much more sympathetic to Hamilton's view of a vibrant, prosperous republic that's buying and selling and engaged in commerce and so forth. Yeah, I'm with you there. And, yep. and Jefferson, you know, was deeply compromised in his views uh, on slavery. So Richard brings out this point. He says, page 97, the lesson Jefferson drew from Roman slavery is dubious at best. Hmm. I mean, does, uh, do you know, do you remember, does Richard go into detail about that? I mean, he does. does, yeah. does so it, does Jefferson grapple with Roman slavery, or does he? His reading of Roman slavery is very selective. Okay. He ignores the parts which make Roman slavery look bad, which are lots of parts. Mm-hmm. You know, you can think of Cato the Elder and his uh, advice in his, I think it's in De Re Rustica, or De, no, it's De Agricultura, sorry. His treatise on agriculture, which advises people when slaves get old, sell them, you know, before they depreciate like a, like a used car. Right. 
it's awful. Yeah. You know, it's deeply dehumanizing mm-hmm. and vicious. Uh, and those are some ugly aspects of Roman history. And Jefferson omits or ignores some of those parts. Okay, okay. Now, in order to do justice to the man, you know, he wasn't uniformly cruel. And uh, the interested student should go read this chapter, chapter four in Richard's book, to get a more balanced approach. But on the whole, Jefferson's reading of Roman history on the subject of slavery was um, problematic. Gotcha. gotcha. That, that's a word academics use, right? They do. It's Problematic. It's often kind of a, a let's brush this off the table, right? Uh, right and to not talk about it right now. Yeah. So Jefferson, your least favorite of the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I can. I think. I, I think I'm with you there. I'm okay. Definitely, I'm definitely much more of a Hamilton man my, right. myself. Yeah. And what about this uh, this remark about Wilson? This is interesting. You want to share that? Please? Sure. Richard writes. James Wilson criticized criticized the Greek and Roman treatment of women. Yes. And that actually looks quite good if you compare it to the attitudes of our times, mm-hmm. right? That's a, an enlightened idea, you might say. Right. And so Wilson, and he was not alone in this, could read Greco-Roman history and read it selectively in terms of you know, critiquing some parts, critically, you might say, right. using discrimination. We have to get into just a little bit here of the Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate which is more accurately called, and I learned this from a friend of mine, called the ratificationist, uh, the rats, and the anti-rats, the anti-ratificationists. Okay, now what does this have to do with the topic we're talking about? <laughs> so the rats and the anti-rats, this was a debate over whether to ratify the Constitution. Okay. And deeply entangled in all of this were questions like, how many executives are we going to have? Mm-hmm. Are we going to have one, or are we going to have two, like the Roman consuls? Okay. Are we going to have a standing army? Are we going to model ourselves after the Roman Republic or some of the European and uh, Dutch republics? How exactly are we going to set up our government? Mm -hmm. So Madison and the other authors of the Constitution are pouring over uh, the histories of different republics, trying to decide how to put these things together. And they were concerned specifically about how to prevent the rise of despotism. Mm -hmm. So the Roman Republic, as they read in uh, Cicero, Sallust, Tacitus, it was great. And then these mafiosi, these warlords, Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. they come along and they turn it into a despotism. Right. How are they going to avoid that? Okay. What do they come up with? Well, I don't think we can say for sure that they have avoided it completely. <laughs> the thing is still in process. But one important, one very important provision that they took wholesale from Cicero, directly from Cicero, was civilian control of the army. Mm. So there's a Latin phrase, cadant armatogai. That is, weapons must yield to the toga. Okay. And the toga is the emblem, the symbol of citizenship. Ah, so yeah. you don't have an army that is controlled by a general. The army is actually controlled by a private citizen, someone who is not himself a soldier. Gotcha. Wrapped up in all this, too, has got to be the, the Second Amendment, right? The, the, um, the right to bear arms. Of, of- well, of course, the anti-rats... Right, the anti-ratificationists led by Patrick Henry and others, they wouldn't accept Constitution as proposed until the Bill of Rights, ah, right? The okay. amendments, the first 10 amendments right. were added in. Mm-hmm. And then that gave them some sense, okay, we've got a compromised document now. We're not going to quickly slide into despotism. Gotcha, gotcha. Let's, let's move on to, to okay. chapter five here, uh, mixed government and classical pastoralism. Yes. So can you, Jeff, explain to our audience a little bit what classical pastoralism is? Yeah. Well, you find it all over both Greek and, and Roman poetry, this kind of idealization of the countryside, um, and which I think is part of a kind of a larger divinization of, of nature writ large that you find in, I think you find it in, 
in poetry and mythologies around the world. But it's this idea that it's in nature uh, that you're going to find um, the closest connection to divinity, your truest humanity. You're not going to find it in the city. The, the ideal of the of the farmer or the shepherd comes up again and again and again. In, an, in addition to that, I think that's exactly right. And in addition to that, when you are in the city rubbing elbows with your fellows, you're going to take on some of their corruption and stench. Oh, of course. Right. So the idea is that brokenness, what Christians would call sin, these are external to us and not internal. Mm. So if you can get out from the hustle and bustle, then your true self will emerge when it's uh, uncontaminated by others. Right, right. It's the noble savage idea. Sure, exactly. And what's really interesting is, you know, this very time period that we're talking about, uh, late 18th, early 19th century, we're seeing the rise of romanticism, mm -hmm. um, both, you know, in music and in art. And that's fully wrapped up in kind of the mystical divine adoration of, uh, of nature. Now you're getting Thoreau, you're getting Beethoven, you're getting all these paintings coming out of Europe that are just kind of idealizing or, or sh you know, showing the sea and showing the countryside, and the idea is that you stand in awe of it and, and you recognize your smallness in comparison to it. So this is this is perfectly in keeping of of, uh, of the times. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, I think Richard summarizes this uh, nicely for us. Page one fifty nine. Can you read that quote? Sure. No theme was more ubiquitous in classical literature than that of the superiority of the rural, agricultural existence, a lifestyle wedged comfortably between the extreme of savage and sophisticated. A motif of some Greek poets like Hesiod and Theocritus, pastoralism became the central theme of Virgil, Horace, and Ovid, leading poets of Rome's Augustan age. Yes, exactly. So the founders appropriated this idea, and they incorporated it into their concept of mixed government. Okay. So we want to have a government that combines the different elements. This is a huge topic. Maybe we can get into it another time. We talk about Cicero. But a mixed government combines elements of Aristotle's different types. So you have some elements of monarchy, which is not supposed to degenerate into despotism. Mm -hmm. You've got elements of aristocracy, which is not supposed to devolve into oligarchy. And you have democracy, which is not supposed to degenerate into um, mob rule, right? Ochlocracy, right? And the Roman Republic, uh, ideally, was also grappling with trying to balance all of those things as well. Yes, right? yeah. yes. And the founders believed that the Romans successfully balanced it, balanced these different types, basically until Julius Caesar. Right. So they wanted to avoid that mistake, respect the rights of the majority and the minority at the same time, if possible. Now, Dave, before we move on to the next section, you wanted to say something about philosophy. Right. So this is chapter six. We're not going to treat this real closely. But uh, in chapter six, Richard details the different philosophical currents at work in the American founding and its time. And these would include primarily Platonism, of which uh, Thomas Jefferson was a severe critic, mm -hmm. Epicureanism. And Jefferson believed every good person like himself was an Epicurean. Mm. He believed Jesus was an Epicurean. Mm. And Socrates. <laughs> He saw Epicureanism everywhere, okay. uh, which is very odd, frankly. Uh, but they also put a lot of weight on Stoicism. So each of them, you know, mentioning Cato and so forth, even Jefferson uh, liked Cato and thought that Stoicism was not a good political philosophy, but it was a good way to deal with your emotions. Mm -hmm. So the ethical elements of Stoicism, you know, hardy suffering in the face of opposition. Sure. This was an ideal for them as a, as a character trait, as a, a quality to cultivate. 
And it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that um, uh, Jefferson or any of the founders were kind of cold when it comes to, to Plato. I mean, if you think about Plato's ideal republic, you know, someone trying to set up a representative Republican democracy would have been horrified by what he suggested. Well, unless you read it as a, a parody, right? Or you interpret it as it often has been as an allegory of the soul yeah. and not really about politics alike. Right. But you're, you're exactly right. If you read Richard, he puts his finger on this and he says, you can find in the Mino, Plato's dialogue, the Mino, you can find clear elements and seeds of natural law. Those parts were very appealing to the founders and they mined that. But the rest of it, you know, they got to the Republic and they thought, oh, this is communism. Yes, right? exactly. This yeah. is, we don't want to be like this at all. Right, right. The rights of the individual are... Uh, completely irrelevant to the good of the whole. Right. And what do you think of, of you know, Plato is also famously no fan of democracy, you know, so, I, you know. And you are? What? Well, is, well I mean, we'd have to unpack that a little bit, but I mean, uh, democracy as an ideal? Sure. I, I, I have no problem with it, but um, to go so far as Plato is to say, you know, it's it's, a, it's mob rule, the, the, the people who should make the decisions should be the elites only. Um, You're not comfortable with that? I'm not comfortable with that, no, exactly. But I mean, It's a subject for another episode. I suppose. I may be more comfortable with it than you are. Okay, all right, all right. Well, let's move on then. Okay, so now we get to chapter seven, we're going to wrap it up, and here we finally get the villain of the story. You've been waiting for this. I have been waiting for this. Yeah. So chapter seven, the myth of classical decline. Okay. And the idea is that the popularity of the classics began to decline during the American Revolution and eventually were eclipsed in American society and life. Okay. So that's the myth. And it's really traced to three founders, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and Thomas Paine. Okay. So can you read us that quote from page 197? I can. In 1749, Franklin reiterated his belief that the classical languages were useless to many students. In a proposal for a Philadelphia Academy published in his own Pennsylvania Gazette, Franklin argued that while all students should be required to study English grammar, uh, only divinity, uh, medicine, and law students should be compelled to study Greek and Latin. Right. Hmm. Pragmatism. Yes. Pragmatism. That's, a, that's very American, isn't of it? Of course it is. Yes. But I don't have to like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go on with page 198. Okay. Franklin passed the reform mantle, right, get rid of classical languages, to Benjamin Rush, the tireless Philadelphia physician and signer of the Declaration of Independence. Now, if there are any Benjamin Rush fans out there, you might want to turn off the episode at this point. What's oh, going to get ugly now? Well, I have no sympathy for Rush. Okay. Uh, Rush is a devout Christian from everything that we can know about him. He's not like Jefferson. He's not a deist, right? Mm-hmm. He comes very close, maybe completely so, you know, to Orthodox Christian views. So in my view, you know, that, that commends him. We're simpatico. But his views on education, oh, that's atrocious. But let's, let's go there. Okay. <laughs> Quote, in 1788, Rush, an avid classicist, suddenly turned against the classical languages with unaccountable fury. As late as 1786, he had declared, quote, I do not wish the learned or dead languages, as they are commonly called, to be reduced below their present just rank in the universities of Europe, especially as I consider an acquaintance with them as the best foundation for a correct and extensive knowledge of the language of our country, end quote. But two years later, Rush omitted Greek and Latin from his plan for a federal university. Why this, why this sudden turn, this unaccountable fury? I don't know. Did he have a, did he have a horrible advisor? <laughs> but what happened to this guy? He got guy? slotted into that classical myth course that's the boring one. Something like that. He was an avid classicist and then boom. Well, sp- speaking of boom... Rush was famous. This is how he made his fortune as a medical doctor, inventing something called Rush's Thunderbolts. 
Do I want to know what these are? It's an enema. <laughs> he made a fortune from this? He did. That... It's good for whatever ails you. Wow. So if uh, this is not the reason that I have such animus toward him, but frankly, it doesn't help. <laughs> so if you're sick, Rush's diagnosis was take one of my thunderbolts. Thunderbolt. Yeah. It'll, it'll purge you completely. <laughs> Does this qualify him to talk about uh, Greek and Latin and whether it has a place in a republic? Well, the Thunderbolt sounds like it's an allusion to Zeus. I don't think so. (laughs) So Richard goes on. In 1789, Rush launched a fervent assault, a fervent assault upon the Greek and Latin requirement. He denounced the, quote, strong and universal prejudice in favor of the Latin and Greek languages as a necessary branch of liberal education and proclaimed the necessity of, quote, combating this formidable enemy of human reason, this tyrant. Wow, this tyrant. Yes. My goodness. So Richard does kind of give a, uh, a theory of why okay. uh, Rush was so much against the classics. And it seems to be that he thought it wouldn't allow, and this will be in the next quote, it wouldn't allow the leadership to have any commonality with the common man. Okay. So it was it was an anti-elitist motive. Okay. So the classics were good for him, as we'll see, mm-hmm. but he didn't want to make it mandatory for everybody because not everybody can appreciate it, and he was afraid there was going to be a division in American society between the learned and the unlearned. Okay. If classical Greek and Latin were requisite. All right. Sounding, you, you're getting a little sympathetic to this idea. Well, I, it, it seems so. I mean, it seems odd to kind of to zero in on Latin and Greek there. As, as I agree. Kind of, as to be the wedge issue. I mean, I'm broadly sympathetic with that with that notion of, of elites over here and, and uh, the unwashed over here. By saying you're sympathetic, you're sympathetic with the criticism of it. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Right. right. But it seems odd to kind of to zero in on, on this requirement as, as fostering that division. In, well, I think it's because his contemporaries were also thoroughly steeped in the classics. He reacted, it seems hmm. like. Yeah. But Richard goes on, page 200. Rush's crusade against the classical languages continued for the next two decades. In 1789, he wrote to John Adams, quote, Who are guilty of the greatest absurdity, the Chinese who press feet into deformity by small shoes, or the Europeans and Americans who press the brain into obliquity by Greek and Latin? <laughs> Do not men use Latin and Greek as the scuttlefish emit their ink on purpose to conceal themselves from an intercourse with common people? Hmm. Hmm. So enough throwing around these Greek and Latin quotes so that you can't just go down to the deli and get a sandwich. Okay. That seems to be Russia's purpose. Okay. It seems a little bit overstated. I mean, if this was... It, but was, you're becoming sympathetic, no. aren't you? Well, I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's a... Mr. Rush, there's a middle way. You know, as a teacher of the classics, I see the value in the classics for, for, you know, for anybody who walks through the door of my classroom. Yes, right, right? it's right? good, enjoyable, entertaining, yes. aesthetically delightful material. That's right. And I, and I don't demand that they all learn Latin and Greek to do so. So, I mean, I get what he's he's saying, but he's I think he's also kind of missing the idea that, well, Latin and Greek are too elite. Uh, it's a little patronizing. Yes. You know, that the, this idea that the, the common person couldn't appreciate any of this stuff. Right. Um, I don't buy that. You want to read that quote from page 201? Sure. I really like it. Yep. Uh, or that is to say, I really dislike it, but I want it read. Gotcha. Okay. And here we go. Rush questioned the utility of the classical languages the rest of his life. In 1810, he lectured John Adams again. And poor Adams is on the receiving end of a lot of this stuff, right? Um, it is folly and madness to spend four or five years in teaching boys the Latin and Greek languages. Were every Greek and Latin book, the New Testament accepted, consumed in a bonfire, the world would be the wiser and better for it. 
All of them that are good for anything are translated into modern languages. Even their beauties and fine thoughts are to be met with in an improved state in modern books. Okay. You, you like Rush now? That's garbage. Throw, That's absolute garbage. Throw them all in a pile and okay. burn them? Man, who, who, uh, who hurt this guy? I don't know. He just likes to be bombastic. Man. But it reminds me of... Um, and the question that I would often get when I would reveal to people what I was studying, you know, back in my college and graduate school days is, is hasn't everything been translated? Yeah. And the, kind of the assumption is, if it has been, why bother? Right. Right. So I think Rush's uh, uh, ideas have been around for a long time. He's ahead of his time. He's ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of that, that discussion going on today um, uh, about you know, kind of the classics as being too snobby, too elite. Why do we need them anymore? Oh, for sure. Right? And this is the part about Rush that really got me. So this is page 205. This is Richard. Quote, no one, not even Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, quoted Roman authors in the original Latin more often than Benjamin Rush. Hmm. Far from diminishing, Rush's propensity for citing Roman authors intensified during his anti-classical campaign. Isn't that crazy? What's with this guy? He's all over the place. Yeah, I think, again, it's a reaction to maybe what he thought was the extreme idolization of the ancient authors by his contemporaries. Hmm. But he goes and he quotes them anyway. He quotes them anyway. Yeah. Right. Rushes Thunderbolts. So I have a personal story here. Yeah. Uh, when this book first came out, you know, I think we said 1995. I read it a few years later. A colleague of mine will go unnamed. A colleague of mine went to some sort of conference in which this book was introduced to him. And I had read the book and enjoyed it and enjoyed it immensely, as I, I think this episode proves. The colleague returned from this conference and what the colleague took away from the conference. Now, I'm a professor of classics, right? The colleague took away from the conference and the book. We don't need to teach Greek and Latin. So he became a, a Russist. Exactly. Oh, I said, gosh. oh, hold on. You read the whole book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you took away from it was Benjamin Rush's idiosyncratic idea that the study of Greek and Latin is bad for an American republic? Yeah, 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 that's it. Okay. <laughs> Did he hound you through the rest of your time there? I probably should stop. Okay, gotcha. I probably shouldn't say any more. All right, all right. Okay. But we have this summary quote about the myth of classical decline. So the classics really did not decline in the minds of the founders. And can you read that, Jeff, from 231? Yes. The fact that the early national period witnessed an unprecedented challenge to the requirement of Greek and Latin in the schools is as important as the fact that it was roundly defeated. The first factor signifies the rise of liberalism in ideology which emphasized the differences between past and present, while the second factor reflects its inability to displace classical republicanism during the founder's lifetime. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. So we got these two competing ideologies, according to Richard, at the time of the founding. The ideology of liberalism, which emphasizes the differences between past and present. Now, liberalism means their classical liberalism in the sense of Edmund Burke, uh, yes. later Lord Acton, and so forth. That is the rights uh, of the individual, the progress of the individual. And Richard says, the fact that the importance of the classics did not decline shows that liberalism did not displace classical republicanism during the founder's lifetime. Okay. okay. They remained committed to these ideals, even though their hearts were pulled toward the ideas of liberalism. So is the idea that kind of what Rush was, uh, uh, was arguing against and what he wanted has kind of colored kind of the memory of this period is, and so kind of feeding this myth of the, of the decline. Do you know, do you get what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Okay. You're asking whether uh, Richard's argument in this book 
is that the opposition of these three men, actually, yeah. Franklin, we didn't talk about Thomas Paine, but Franklin, Thomas Paine, and Benjamin Rush, yeah. that the, the really strong statements of these men have led subsequent generations to think that the founders retreated from classics at okay, some point. Okay, okay, that's what I'm saying. And yep. Richard's argument is, no, they never really did retreat. That's a misunderstanding. Hmm. What they did was they were feeling the pull of two different ideologies, liberalism and classical republicanism. Okay. So the one they get from enlightenment principles, the other they get from ancient Greece and Rome. Okay. Specifically Tacitus, Sallust, Cicero, those three individuals. And that really won the day, at least during the founder's lifetime. Okay. Subsequent generations, I don't think so. Right, right. But that's not my specialty. Right, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, we got we to wrap this up. We do. We, we got to get out of here. Okay. Yeah, by the dawn's early light, right. right? We've had a lot of quotes in this episode, but hey, we did the hard work for you all. That's right. Well, we read the book. What, what, so what are, what are the listeners complaining about? <laughs> I can just hear them. <laughs> I can just hear them. You want to read the final quote for us, page 243? I think I'm going to let you do it. Okay. Yep. This is a, a brilliant summary of what was an excellent book. Quote, if studied critically, the shrewd ancients who founded Western civilization can still teach us a great deal. While the oppressive thought systems of the world, such as sexism, ethnocentrism, class bigotry, and absolutism, are by no means uniquely classical, racism is not classical at all, the principal ideological tools which have been used to combat them, the theories of popular sovereignty, natural law, and mixed government, are all classical in origin. Even the characteristics of the classics most troublesome to modern Americans, this would be you, Jeff, their anti-democratic tenor can serve as a reminder of the need to reconcile minority rights with the majority rule. Hmm. That's written like philosophy. That is. Man, that, that's very persuasive. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. You, it touches on all the elements there. Yeah. Richard's not a fan of Rush, I'm going to guess. Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, right. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Could any sane person be? I got No, no. Again, when you're talking politics, you got to be careful with the name Rush, right? Exactly. Right, so we're talking about Benjamin Rush here, right? Right. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we got to wrap up this episode. We do. Very topical. We hope that the listener learned something, as we did, about the American founding and how it's so deeply saturated with references to the classics. Yes. Yep. We got to say thank you to some people. Of course. As always, thanks to our intrepid engineer, Mishka. I don't think she's celebrating July 4th. No, she's not. <laughs> But Mishka, thank you so much for your hard work making us sound good. Uh, We want to say thank you to Ken Tamplin and Scott Van Zen, the great musicians that provide the guitar and other things for us. I think they're celebrating the 4th of July. Yes, as always. Dave, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method before we Well, if you want to study Greek, I think the language Jefferson called the best of all languages, Mm -hmm. something like that. You want to study some Greek, go to mossmethod.com. Check out a program I've developed that is self-paced, expert, and accessible. It's also inexpensive. I'll teach you how to learn Greek. You can read Homer, uh, Isocrates, Xenophon, Demosthenes, just like the founders did, if you'd like to. So mossmethod.com, check it out. Sounds fabulous. Uh, Listeners, as always, subscribe. Uh, leave a nice uh, message or critique on your uh, on the platform of where you'd like to listen to the podcast. Uh, drop us a note, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V or me, Jeff at adnauseum.com. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear. Uh, we always love to hear from our listeners. Yes, we have some great and exciting things coming up, as we've already mentioned. This is going to become a visual experience very soon. Yes. We're in the process of building the studio, getting the equipment together, and I uh, can't say exactly when, but we're hopeful maybe August. Uh, Surely no later than September, uh, you're going to be able to watch our shenanigans and hijinks on the YouTubes. How can they resist? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure who's more uh, 
anxious about this. <laughs> Us or the listeners. Know, exactly. If they were wise, the listeners would be the anxious ones. Get nervous. Exactly. So what do we have on tap for next week, Jeff? Next week. Very exciting. Oh, um, we need a drum roll we here. Do. I do. Um, we're, we are going to be uh, having a conversation with Ross King. Ross King? Yes. Do you mean the New York Times bestseller Ross King? The one and only. The guy who wrote Brunelleschi's Dome? Yes. The guy who wrote Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling? The guy who wrote Leonardo and the Last Supper? That's the guy. And what about his newest one? The Bookseller of Florence? Oh, wow. Which is another fabulous tome. So the guy who knows everything there is to know about Renaissance Florence? It, 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 this is the guy. And he knows how to bring these the erudition to uh, a popular audience in a way that I have rarely encountered. He's amazing. He's amazing. And we are just so thrilled that we're going to have the Ross King on the air with us next week. He's you know, going to talk about how the classics influenced him. Yes. And, you know, we were talking about kind of models to live our lives by. I kind of want to be Ross King. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. It's incredible. So be sure to tune in next week. This is going to be really big. Yes. And Jeff, you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from one uh, Jeanette Rallison, who uh, once said, I don't care what you yanks say. Cheese should not whiz. That's great. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Y'all ready for this?